That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 89. It's titled, How to Outperform the Market. In the early years of my career as an investment advisor, I spent an inordinate amount of time defending active stock managers who were underperforming their market benchmark. An example of a market benchmark is the S&P 500 index, which tracks the performance of U.S. large company stocks. My institutional clients chose these active managers based on the manager's long-term success in outperforming the market. After all, why pay an active management fee unless the manager can outperform the market net of fees? especially when there are low-cost index funds and ETFs that can closely replicate the market performance. What do I mean by the market? In its broadest sense, the market is the total value of every investment opportunity that exists in the world, weighted by each investment size, including stocks, bonds, real estate, etc. It represents the average holdings across all investors. This is the global market portfolio, and it can be divided into subsets, such as the U.S. stock market. The U.S. stock market is a sum of all U.S. stocks weighted by the total value of each company's outstanding equity shares. That's called by market capitalization. And the U.S. stock market represents the average holdings across all investors who own U.S. stocks. A market index that approximates the U.S. stock market is the Russell 3000 Index. And then the S&P 500, in turn, is a subset of the overall U.S. stock market. The S&P 500 is comprised of the largest 500 U.S. stocks weighted by the total market value of each company's outstanding share. So the S&P 500, the Russell 3000, the Russell 1000, which is the top 1,000 names, Russell 2000 is the the smallest 2,000 names within the overall U.S. market. These are all market capitalization-weighted benchmark. So when when a client hired an active stock manager and we would do these beauty contests where we would bring in two or three managers and they would do a 30-minute presentation to the not-for-profit boards and investment committees that I worked with. These were university endowments, private foundations, environmental organizations, they would select a manager and then we would assign that manager a market benchmark or index that best represented the universe of stocks in which the manager selected its individual holdings. Each quarter we would put together a comprehensive performance report and we would show how the manager had done relative to that benchmark and we would show how the overall client's portfolio, the overall fund or or foundation was doing relative to a balanced market benchmark that was comprised of different elements of the market portfolio 
that essentially track the overall asset allocation. When it gets down to it, we were very helpful for clients in helping them set up an investment policy statement and introducing new asset classes to them and helping them come up with a long-term strategic asset allocation and to identify managers that could be used to implement that portfolio, both active managers as well as passive index funds. But if you would ask, at the end of the day, how are we judged? As to whether we were successful advisors or not, it was whether we had outperformed or whether the client had outperformed its balance index overall. That that was the bogey. And so for much of my career, I was focused on how could I get that overall portfolio to outperform the benchmark. In the early days, for the first five, six years of my investment career, I thought it could be done with active managers. And we had a large research staff that was out trying to find the best small company managers, the best mid-cap managers, even active large-cap managers, bond managers, every asset class, finding managers that could outperform. But when we would get into the meeting to help them select, and sometimes we would start with an even larger list. We might start with five or six managers, put together a quantitative summary package and some qualitative data, and then the committee would choose which two or three they wanted to, to interview. And so they would narrow it down further, and then we would the next meeting we'd bring them in for interviews. Well, here's the challenge. The clients often chose the managers who had outperformed their designated market index on both a short-term and long-term basis. Because from, from their perspective, it looked like the manager had consistently outperformed, where in reality, there could have been periods within that longer-term track record that they actually underperformed, but they had outperformed in the most recent period, perhaps by even a large enough amount to pull their overall long-term track record above the market index. So they would hire the manager and they would start managing, and often these managers' style would go out of favor shortly after they were selected. And then they would underperform for a period of time. And sometimes these performance droughts lasted three years or more. Everyone felt bad about this underperformance. The client, the investment manager, and me. And the manager always had excuses for why it was happening while their style was out of favor. But it was, it was a frustrating experience because I'd go to the meeting and, and literally felt like we had this entire portfolio, but much of the time was spent analyzing why this manager was underperforming. Was it because the manager wasn't skilled or had the client made a mistake? And, and should we start looking at other options? One of the things I would tell my clients as these bad times persisted is the only way a manager could outperform its market's benchmark is to structure a portfolio that differs meaningfully from the market. This is sometimes called tracking here. If you're going to outperform something, you have to take bets that differ from the market index. Now, this period of underperformance was not because the manager was unskilled. At least that's what I would tell my clients. And and in most cases, it was not a lack of skill. It was simply that their particular investment style was not being rewarded. Now, what do I mean by style? 
a style. I used in the beginning. I used to call them styles, and eventually, I began to realize these styles were something different. They were factors, factors that drive performance. Things such as value, growth, momentum, low volatility. A value manager, for example, is invests in stocks that are cheap relative to the market, and at times. These factors, such as value or momentum, earn an excess return above what could earn investing in the overall market. The market itself is the sum of what all investors own. So every, all the investors voluntarily own specific investments for whatever reasons, and the sum told of what they own, that's the market. And so the average investor owns the market because it's an it's a aggregation what everybody owns. Consequently, the market is the most diversified portfolio an investor can own. It is the most efficient portfolio. That's what the market portfolio is. It is the most diversified portfolio, and it is the portfolio owned by the average investor. So if an individual or an investment manager wants to outperform the market, then they have to structure a portfolio that differs from the market. They can no longer be average. And if you're no longer average, then you're either above average or you're below average. And ideally, you're structuring a portfolio that differs from average that will allow you to be above average. One way to do that is to have factor exposure that has been persistently rewarded by the market. And we're going to talk about some of these factors, but momentum is an example, value is a moment is an example, low quality or high quality is an is an example, low volatility, these are factors that have persistently been rewarded that haven't been diversified away and they deliver an excess return over the long term. Now, the question is, you know, this excess returns are sometimes called risk premiums, and risk premiums are rewards for having factor exposure. And why do you get a reward for having a factor exposure? Because you are rewarded for suffering through bad times, periods of underperformance. Now, that seems like a bizarre concept. I'm going to be rewarded by suffering through periods of underperformance or bad times. Well, you can look at it as the overall market, that this concept of the equity risk premium. Equity markets, the stock market overall, is heavily influenced by the growth of the economy. And when the economy is in a, re- a recession, stock markets tend to underperform bonds. Over the long term, so they're they're much more cyclical than bonds. They are less volatile than bonds, and so or more volatile than bonds. And so when you own stocks, there are periods such as 2008, 2009, 2001, 2002, when stocks dramatically underperform cash and fixed income. This is a bad time. Volatility spikes, performance drops. And that is a bad time. And that is rewarded. In other words, investors price stocks so that ultimately they are rewarded 
for those bad times. They get a premium, a risk premium. That's for the overall market. But there's also investable factors if you step away, such as value, momentum, which also have periods of underperformance, bad times, and there's also a reward for suffering through them. So, but that, that's a rational explanation. But there are also behavioral reasons why you get a risk premium for suffering through bad times with some of these persistent, what is known as smart beta. In other words, these persistent factors where you get rewarded. Now, not every time you're non, not average, when, you're, when you've structured a portfolio that differs from the market portfolio over the benchmark, you're not always rewarded. An example is growth investing. Growth stocks are, it's a style where you're buying companies or stocks of companies have, that have accelerated revenue growth, that have accelerated earnings growth. This differs from momentum. Momentum is buying stocks whose price has gone up the past year and perhaps shorting the stocks whose price has gone down. And so this is, this is, an, this is really a price momentum aspect that is actually is rewarded by the market. But growth itself, just buying a high-growth company, is not ultimately rewarded, even though there might be bad times. Growth stocks are often highly recognizable names, such as Apple and Google, and they're found in sectors of the economy experiencing rapid, exciting changes like technology and healthcare. And growth investors behaviorally often assume that good times will continue indefinitely. The high earnings, the high growth in terms of revenue, so they're willing to pay more to own the stocks of high-growth companies. But invariably, the rapid growth slows down. The investors are disappointed, and the stock underperforms the market. Meanwhile, you have investors who don't want to own companies that are cheap or undervalued because they're struggling companies, they're not as compelling sectors, and there's a view that these bad times will continue indefinitely, and so the stocks become cheap relative to the market and relative to growth stocks. But invariably, the bad times end, and the cheap stocks get repriced upwards, and the earnings of the value investor, they can earn more than the growth investor because you get repriced and you get, you get that pop because of this behavioral aspect. And it's, this, it's the behavioral aspect which is leads us, which is why these, these factors work, why you can get an excess return, why you can get a risk premium for some factors, but not all factors. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. 
You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. One of the most rewarding things I learned and acted upon as an investment advisor is when I stopped trying to use active managers and realized I didn't need to pay those high fees to get exposure to market factors that earned excess returns, that I could outperform the market using smart beta, using index funds. And at the time, it wasn't called smart beta. And I've talked about this in episode three, where I had this brilliant idea, I thought at the time, as I was flying home back to Idaho from Cincinnati to take our best managers, those best active managers that we knew that had outperformed their market benchmark and put them together, get their top 10 names, their top 10 holdings, and build a portfolio of 50 to 60 stocks comprised of their top holdings. And I spent an entire summer backtesting this concept and found that once I constructed a portfolio of these high-conviction names owned by our recommended managers, that there was no outperformance. And I remember sitting along the Snake River just really, really frustrated and discouraged because I thought this, is, this was the idea. But then I came up with another idea. Well, why don't I see if I could replicate factor exposures using index funds, emphasizing value, emphasizing momentum. Well, mostly it was on value. And and that's where I started. And lo and behold, there was outperformance. And so a partner and I, we put up a amount of money to start a track record, and we outperformed that market benchmark for four years in a row. And we outperformed it significantly. And, and that attracted client interest. We started managing money. And we grew that portfolio to $2 billion. But after four years of outperformance, I remember thinking, this, it can't go on like this. I mean, it just nobody is that good at investing. There will be a period of underperformance when those factors are not rewarded by the market. And, and indeed, there was a period uh, of underperformance. And, and we, we worked through that. And But the long-term track record did outperform. Now we, And it was simply based on factor exposure. So how do you outperform the market? 
You outperform the market by not being an average investor. You have to structure a portfolio that differs from the market. And you can do it using factors such as smart beta, factors that are persistently rewarded by the market. And by persistent, that doesn't mean every year. There are performance droughts, underperformance, by having exposure to value, momentum, and in other areas. And the question is, can you endure periods of subpar performance? The other day, I got an email from Rich, who is a member of the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. And he says, I just listened to the episode on smart beta investing and found it very interesting. This was episode 23. One question, though, if you decide to stick with smart beta funds, aren't you still making a bet that whatever metric the particular smart beta ETF is using in lieu of market capitalization will be, over the long run, a better strategy than a market capitalization approach? And is there any long-term data to actually support this? It's a great question because we're talking about getting rewarded with a risk premium excess return by having exposure to smart beta. Is there demonstration of that? Is it possible? There is a paper that I'll link to. If you remember my insider's guide, I sent you a link to this paper, or you can go to the show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's awesome. You can sign up for my insider's guide, and then I can just email those, those show notes to you and a summary article every week, send it out every Wednesday. But the paper is Fact and Fiction of Momentum Investing. It was by Clifford Asnets, Andrea Frazzini, Ronan Israel, and Tobias Motskowitz. Cliff Asnes runs the firm, is one of the founders of the firm AQR Capital, and one of the investment firms that I used at my prior firm, a brilliant, brilliant investor. Well, what they did is they looked at the data, and they went back to different time frames. It went from 1927 to 2013. They did a period from 1963 to 2013, and from 1991 to 2013, and they looked at the rewards for different factors. And I'm going to just focus on that time frame, 1963 to 2013, sort of the modern history of markets. You can go to the paper and and see the other time periods. But first off, they measure what is the equity risk premium. The return you got over that period, annualized return, 63 to 2013 for owning stocks. So this would be long stocks and short the risk-free rate, this is U.S. stocks, you earn 6% annualized. So, so that, that's a market factor. And that's a factor, that's the excess return you get over cash by having exposure to stocks overall over this long time frame, reward for being willing to withstand the bad times, periods of losing money and high volatility. But there are other factors that they saw. When they went long, small stocks, so they bought long and then they shorted large stocks, this is the size premium, size factor. And by shorting, you're borrowing shares. And, and if, the stock, if the large stocks, basically, you're, 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 you're reducing your overall market ex- exposure because you're long, short, small stocks, you're short, large stocks. So you've isolated the size factor. That strategy returned... 3.1% annualized. The value factor, where you were long the most expensive stocks, the high 
I'm sorry, you, you were long the cheapest stocks, the high book-to-price stocks, and you were short the low book-to-price stocks. That's the value factor. When that was isolated, the annualized return was 4.5%. The momentum factor, the portfolio was long stocks that had high relative past one-year returns, and it was short stocks that had low relative past one-year returns. That's the momentum factor that was isolated, and there the return was 8.4% annualized. So these were, these were isolated factors that were accomplished by going long one aspect and shorting the other. Now, many smart beta ETFs, they're not long short. They're focusing exclusively on a factor, but because they're long only, they also have the market exposure. And so the idea is, yes, you'll have the value factor, but you also have market exposure, and then you'll be able to get some level of outperformance. On the Money for the Rest of Us hub, we're starting a module series where we're systematically looking at each of these factors, explaining the rationale, why they work, looking at what the returns have been, and then providing examples of all the the dozens, if not hundreds, of smart beta ETFs, which, in my view, is the most appropriate for an investment portfolio. And so this is a way that a an investor can outperform the market by focusing on these these smart beta ETFs. And you can get more information on that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Now that's the first way to outperform, ha- being not not being average, being willing to have a portfolio that differs from the market and using these factors that have been rewarded by the market over the long term. The second, quest, the second way to go about it is to differ by trying to adjust your timing to these various factors. And, and an example is adjusting your stock allocation, the exposure to the market factor, the equity risk premium, based on the economic regime, based on what the economy is doing, based on other measures. And there's a couple papers that... When I was at this ETF conference back in last month in Phoenix, I got a copy of the Journal of Portfolio Management, which is my favorite all-time financial journal because it usually has practical articles that, that have shown. And there were two articles there on market timing. And, and But this was not short-term market timing. These were I've never been a short-term market timer, but when I managed money professionally, we did adjust exposure to the market risk factor and other factors based on market conditions. And I was pleased to see two articles that, that went over some, some of this data. The first was an article by, it was called Regime Base Versus Static Asset Allocation, Letting the Data Speak. It was by Peter Nystrup, Bo William Hansen, Henrik Matson, and Eric Lindstrom. And their quote is, traditional strategic asset allocation portfolios seek to develop static all-weather portfolios that optimize efficiency across a range of economic scenarios. If economic conditions are persistent and strongly linked to asset class performance, then a dynamic strategy should add value over static weights. The purpose of regime-based strategy is to take advantage of favorable economic regimes, withstand adverse economic regimes, and reduce potential drawdowns. In other words, reduce your exposure to the market factor and avoid 
the bad times. Is that possible to do? They, their approach was to use spikes in volatility as their timing method. And on, on the hub, we, we look at volatility as one of the measures of what I call market internals. And so they just isolated this volatility and would adjust their exposure. They would go from bonds, so, and they used the JPM Global Bond Index, and then they would go to global stocks. And that was sort of their timing, the MSAI All Country World Index. Over time, the Global Bond Index over this period, 1996 to 2014, returned 6%, and its maximum drawdown, in other words, the largest loss of that period was 5%. The, the MSCI All Country World Index returned 6.9%, and its maximum drawdown was 58%. The static portfolio, which was 49% stocks, 51% bonds, returned 6.4%, and it had a 32% drawdown. But when they used their timing method of going from stock to bonds based on increase in volatility, the return was 11.4%, almost double. This is annualized, and the maximum drawdown was 13%. I'll link to that paper in the show notes. Unfortunately, you kind of have to, to pay to get it. Not, not Don't pay me, but you got to pay the journal. They, they keep it pretty tight. The other article was buy and hold versus timing strategy. It was by Todd Fellman, Alan Jung, and Jim Klein. And they looked at other methods for determining adjusting between stocks and bonds. In their case, they focused on economic items. They looked at the conference board of leading indexes. Index. And this, this is a a leading index, and it looks at it includes PMI data, which we use on the hub. It has some interest rate spreads. It has housing data, employment data. But it's a measure to see, is the economy slowing or, or growing? And when, and their timing was, when the conference board leading index fell three months in a row, then they would go to bonds. And when it climbed three months in a row, they would go to stocks. They also did a two-month period. What they found is the return by making that switch, and, th- and their data went from 1970 to 2012, they returned 11.7% annualized versus 10% for the market, and it switched 13 times. So they looked at economic data. They also looked at another aspect of market terminal, 200-day moving averages. When the stock market fell below its 200-day moving average in terms of the S&P 500, they would buy T-bills. When it rose above the 200-day moving average, they would buy stocks. That return was 11.1% versus 10% for the market or for the S&P 500. There were 59 switches from 1970 to 2012. Then they combined several together. They combined the leading index and the 200-day moving average. In other words, an economic trend and a market internal trend. There, the return was 12.8% annualized versus 10% for the S&P. When they focus only on valuation, though, they used the Schiller PE to make adjustments, and they broke it into quintiles, and they would adjust their allocation based on where valuations were. Their return was only 8%. It trailed the market. In other words, just trying to time value only didn't work. But when you combine value, when you combine some of the economic trends, and when you combine 
the market internal, such as 200-day moving average, there you have outperformance. And that is how I manage my own portfolio. And that's why on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub, I do a monthly investment conditions report where we look at all three of those areas. We look at valuations, we look at economic trends, and we look at market internals, things such as a 200-day moving average. Why do we do that? Not as a short-term timing tool. We're looking for regime changes, changes that we're potentially suggest we're heading into bad times, periods of market losses and underperformance, and we're trying to mitigate that. How do you outperform the market? You outperform by having exposure to factors that have been rewarded by the market, smart beta factors, risk premiums. You can outperform the market by adjusting your timing for regime changes. I don't care about outperforming the market anymore. I'm not measured by whether I outperform. What I care about is earning a return that will sustain me through retirement. I can help you do that on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub because I have model portfolio allocations, and now we're building out smart beta factors so you can systematically make your own choice in terms of how you want to adjust your portfolio based on smart beta factors, based on regime changes as you use the investment conditions report. You can get show notes for this episode, as I mentioned, at moneyfortherestofus.net. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not provided any type of investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.